Welcome to the Curious Climber podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Stacey Sims, who is currently a senior research scientist at the University of Waikato in New Zealand. She's an applied researcher in human performance, specifically looking at sex differences in training, nutrition, and environmental conditions. She was previously an exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist at Stanford University, where she also specialized in sex difference of environmental and nutritional considerations for recovery and performance. So she's looked a lot at female physiology, specializing in women's health and women's performance specifically. Now, I first actually came across Stacey Sims because she has uh, quite a a broad um, social media platform where she really pushes the message of women are not small men. And I remember first seeing a post by her and thinking, huh, I've never really thought about that. I know that sounds, it seems crazy to me now, but you know, I've done a bunch of postgraduate study and when you look at studies, they are so more than, more than often done on men and very rarely done on women, especially when we're looking at sport and nutritional science. And that's so relevant to, you know, half the population. So, you know, often we're just, as women and sports women, we're taking data that's been tested on men and just extrapolating it to women and assuming that it's going to be the same um, set of guidelines for us. And I guess in some cases it will be, right? But in a lot of cases it might not be because we have a lot of different environmental, um, you know, hormonal environmental differences in our going on in our bodies. And if you think about even just the basics of a young sports person going through puberty, it's really different for um, girls than it is for guys. And we talk a lot about that in this podcast. So it's it's quite a, a dense conversation, I think, uh, in a good way. Um, it was really, really interesting. We talk a lot about the current state of research, um, where the wider issues are around there not being much um, research into um, women and women's physiology. We talk about how much we can actually take from what there currently is as well, how much we're kind of trying to understand mechanisms, but maybe extrapolating them to guidelines when there isn't enough research. I, for one, have seen a certain amount of, you know, um, female-only teams being trained according to their menstrual cycle, which sounds, you know, great and exciting, but then I've also seen, you know, well-known physiologists like Kirsty Elliott-Sale saying, do you know what, we don't actually have enough evidence for that right now. So Stacey and I talk through quite a lot of those issues, and she's really kind of open and transparent about where we are. We also just go into a lot of nitty-gritty about what you can do to work around your cycle, and we talk about the cycle itself, so understanding where you are in different hormonal phases of your cycle. Um, I mean, yeah, listen to the conversation. I've got all these notes here and I feel like I could fill the introduction with all the different points that we talked about, but I'll just let you get on and and listen to this. I'd say it's really a, a really in, interesting and useful conversation for female athletes out there, but also for you know the other half of the population. So for the men out there, it's, it's really interesting to try and understand uh, where women are and female athletes are coming from and also if anyone's coaching out there to understand um, how your female athletes may be kind of affected by being in a slightly different environment okay I'll stop talking enjoy Okay, so we're recording. Um, firstly, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I feel like uh, it's a little bit of a strange time at the moment, right? And I feel like it would be remiss not to at least mention what phase of time we're in. So it's the 26th of March. We're kind of in the midst of this whole coronavirus situation. And although that's not actually what I really want to spend this podcast talking yeah. to you about, I feel like it'd be weird not to mention it. So where are you at the moment and how are things where you are? Uh, I am in New Zealand, and this is day one of national shelter in place. Oh, right. So, okay. And what does yeah. that mean in terms of restrictions? Um, you can't see anybody outside of the people you live with, um, and you can't drive anywhere except the grocery store or the doctor emergency. Um, you can go outside to exercise, but you have to be able to leave from your door, so you can't drive somewhere. You can 
bend the rules of it and guess ride your bike because there's so many people out on bikes today just mm. going to the beach and stuff but still maintaining their their you know their social distance which is good um because it's the tail end of summer right now and so people are still trying to get the best of the weather sure um yeah so okay. we'll see mandated four weeks of it and well kids are out of school going crazy and being bored already and skyping play dates and stuff so yeah it's an interesting time yeah, yeah it's pretty similar here actually in fact almost exactly the same restrictions came in for us on monday so we're okay. a few days in and yeah everyone's just kind of like getting used to it um, yeah. i tend to go for walks at like six in the morning because then there's no one out <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind exactly. of feels a bit more peaceful um, yeah exactly Cool. So maybe you could, we could start by if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background and your academic focuses. So we have a kind of starting point for where we're going to go with this conversation. Yeah. So um, I guess background really is a combination of athletics and academia. So uh, I kind of got involved in really trying to understand um, why women are not small men or sex differences and training and nutrition when I was an undergrad and I was also a rower and or on the crew team. So really trying to understand how some of the applications of training and nutrition advice were working for the men and not for the women. And when I was asking these questions in class, the answers I were getting was getting were, you know, women aren't studied very well. We don't really study them because they're too difficult. They are then the results that they're anomaly, they get thrown out or the best one ever was, why do you want to study women? We don't know enough about men. Mm. And when you're like, wait a second, I'm, you know, I'm not the same as you who's telling me all this stuff and doing metabolism labs and seeing my results being different from the men that are doing the exact same thing. And then my results are being called an anomaly started really piquing my interest from an academic standpoint. But then the more I learned on my own and trying to apply it, the more I realized that women have a huge disservice when things are just generalized. Um, so that was kind of like the turning point in undergrad. So went through graduate school, did work in a clinical environment, got into doing my PhD and just kind of expanded from there. Um, and the more that we think we know about women, the more we don't really know. So it's still an ongoing pursuit 20 some odd years later, really trying to understand um, the menstrual cycle, how hormones affect adaptation, how they expect, affect us, how you know we get certain anxiety and depression and just for a few days and all these things that create this myriad of things. Mm. And when women aren't aware, we blame ourselves. Like we're not fit enough. We didn't eat well. We didn't sleep well. When really it's physiology that's fighting back against us. So if we understand it and embrace it and know what kind of interventions we can put into play to kind of level the playing field across this hormone perturbation or these fluctuations, the more we can get out of our training and, and improve our uh, performance potential. Yeah. Oh, cool. So one of the things actually in your TED talk that really kind of struck with me, and if anyone hasn't listened to Stacey's TED talk, it's definitely one to go and find is the young girls dropping out of sport at puberty. And this is, I guess, like a huge factor with the differences between men and women. When we get to puberty, the changes are, you know, guys get more muscle, they get stronger. Yeah. And as women, we get a period and we generally put on a bit of weight and things change in a different direction. And that's huge implications for huge. women in sport. Yeah, massive. I mean, that's a, the new focus. Like I've spent so many years in the premenopausal but now that I have a daughter who's seven and I'm seeing changes just on the playground where girls are not as involved in, you know, pick up hockey or pick up soccer because um, they're feeling a bit ungainly and getting questions from um, coaches about girls and how do we change it and the injury risk and stuff. So, yeah, when we look at the onset of puberty that really starts around the age of eight, you start seeing changes around the age of eight. Um, and the boys become more aggressive, they start getting leaner, they start getting faster. And as the girls start getting closer to the age of like a period starting, their body completely changes, their hips widen, their shoulder girdle widens. 
um, their whole body mechanics change, but we don't address it. And mm. a lot of girls in sport are like, well, what's going on? I can't, I'm not as fast as I was. I'm getting slower. I'm getting fatter. I can't do turns. I, you know, gymnasts, the same thing. So it's across the board. And if we explain that these are just inherent changes and it's a small blip in time. And if we look at functional fitness, we look at relearning the mechanics of movement. Um, it helps the girls immensely because they're like, oh, I get it now. Yeah, all right, my body's changing. These are the reasons why it's not I have to stop sport. It's not that I'm not any good at it. It's just my body's either more advanced or not as advanced as my teammates. And if we learn these functional movements, then it sets all the girls up for the rest of their teenage into their 20s and onwards. Um, so yeah, there's a couple of coaches here that I've worked with and we're starting to put out some education platforms around it to help other coaches understand and parents understand oh that's amazing because I mean I've on a personal level like I remember I've climbed since I was a kid and I've always been a climber and I remember going through a phase where and it sounds awful to say it but I just wished I was a boy because yeah. it would have been simpler and also all the I hung out with a lot of boys like when I was growing up climbing was really male dominated and some things just seem to come a bit easier to them. And exactly. I got into this habit of like, well, I remember being a bit ashamed of it because my mom was like really feminist and I felt like I shouldn't be wishing to be a boy, but <laughs> I just kind of wanted things to be a bit simpler and I wanted to be able to gain strength in the same way that I could see my peers gaining strength. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, in a, in a bigger sense of, of that um, story, I then, you know, had periods of overtraining and things probably because I'm, you know, trying to keep up. And I see that, I think, in a lot of women. Um, and I think it would be really empowering for our next generation if we can come to a place of, like you said, just understanding the differences and seeing them for what they are and seeing the positive sides of them as well, that we can, yeah. you know, I've heard you say in, in various uh, areas that your period can be like an ergogenic aid, that we can actually use those fluctuations in hormones as a positive benefit to our training once we actually understand them. Yeah, exactly. And the other critical thing, like with climbing, as you're talking about, you see your peers at that time and who are getting stronger and stuff is we have a different center of gravity. So for women, our center of gravity is lower than men's, which makes it even that much more difficult if you're climbing. Mm. You're having like this sink and all of your gravity is pulling you down and our upper body, like our grip strength and everything is less just because of our angles. So there's all those things that people aren't aware of. And so when you start looking at sports like climbing, um, and even things like parkour, where you have all these different angles that you have to be aware of and movement, um, it becomes critical for girls to understand this. Mm. Interestingly, actually, what you say about angles, I work for a training company called Lattice Training, and they do a lot of kind of data collection on like finger strength and various kind of um, strength and fitness um, profile parameters. And one of the things they've noticed is that to operate at a similar level of climbing ability, so grade of climbing, women mm -hmm. don't seem to need as strong fingers as men. And that's they have noticed the connection between that and hip flexibility. So because our hips can open more, we can actually get our hips closer to the wall. So our movement is a bit more efficient often. And so actually, because what they noticed at the beginning when they were collecting data, they were like, all these women are climbing quite hard, but their finger strength kind of doesn't line up with that. And it was yeah. super interesting is to see like a positive side of it. Oh, okay, we've on average got more hip flexibility, which means we can move a bit more efficiently on the wall. Yeah, and a wider hip angle. So you have more room to move as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, that's why you're glad you're not a boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't feel that way anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, but <laughs> go back and tell your younger self, no, you yeah, don't want to exactly. be a boy. Look at all these great things that are coming your way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so to go back to the kind of research, <laughs> Uh, that was one of the things you've talked about quite a lot is that there isn't, there just isn't much research into female physiology. And so when we start from that point, where do a lot of the recommendations come from that you see and that, you know, some recommendations I've heard from you, is it a case of we take the mechanistic understanding of physiology and then we take a bit of a leap because the data isn't quite there yet? Or is it, yeah. Um, it's a mix. I mean, like it depends on where you're looking at. If you're looking at like specific training advice, we know that in the past three to four years, there's some, been some really good sound uh, research coming out in particular about resistance training and phase-based training um, for women on, on HC or just naturally cycling. If we're looking at the 
uh, more old school nutrition recommendations. Um, like I gave a talk earlier today looking specifically at carbohydrate intake and protein intake. And when you look at the recommendations there, all the data sets on men and it's generalized. Even in the position statements, they have like S slash H E, she, he, and they go on and say what the recommendation is. Um, and there's no basis for that. But in 20, early 2019, there started a series of, of um, protein research based on women. Um, and so there's some more specific guidelines coming up about how many grams of protein we need to put protein timing window and that kind of stuff. Um, so instead of trying to find a few niche studies, now there's this whole series of studies that each back each other up. And it's not just from the same research group. So we're seeing like more and more really good research coming out, but it's only been in the past few years. Mm. Um, prior to that, it was pulling from different um, like fertility and endocrinology, um, some of the more mechanistic aspects to look at sex differences and making some assumptions of how we can alter some of these things. Mm. Uh, but I've seen a big switch in the past three years and it's great because now I don't feel like I'm alone in my research. Yeah. My PhD students don't feel like they're alone in their research either. So um, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it's, it's this kind of mixed feeling of like, they're not quite being enough research, but yet we're starting to see these recommendations. And I saw a statement that Kirsty Elliott sale, who's a UK based, um, mm -hmm academic in female physiology and she she basically said that there wasn't currently any fit for purpose evidence-based guidelines for women's training or performance for different phases of the menstrual cycle which I, I was like oh but I've been reading all the stuff and was I was kind of confused to hear that yeah so I was too I mean I know Kirsty quite well we're colleagues we've done a lot of talks together we bounce off each other and um, there was something that must have gotten under her skin to do that because when you started reading more and more in that Twitter feed it came down to you can't say there's enough robust evidence to show that you can put every woman on the same training program based on the menstrual cycle which is what the um, Guardian was kind of alluding to when it came out with the USA Cycling and the Fitter app. But the backstory of that is when you track your menstrual cycle and you know your menstrual cycle phase and you know how you feel and how you respond, you can design your training program appropriate to your hormone fluctuations. It's not generalizable to everyone because it's unique to the woman. And when right. you start reading through that Twitter feed, this is where it comes out. Yes, there is robust evidence in the strength and conditioning world to support phase-based training. The evidence for aerobic conditioning, which is her forte, um, is still in its nuance. And it's still very um, new. There's just been maybe one or two studies that have just recently come out looking at top-end VO2 in the follicular phase. But the study in that whole... Um, aerobic conditioning set, like I said, like she's a half marathoner, she's very much endurance, that evidence isn't there. But the strength-based stuff is very robust and there's more and more coming out about it. Because it's way easier to do a strength-based program and a strength-based research project than it is to control for all the confounding variables that you have to for aerobic and anaerobic conditioning. Sure. Um, yeah, so when it first came out, I was like, I'm not gonna get into Twitter war, <laughs> but I just going to watch and see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So there's that, the backstory and the nuances that came out of it. Cause I like you was like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting what you say about it being specific to the woman. I think that's where maybe some of the misunderstanding comes in rather than everyone in their follicular phase needs to do this. And everyone in their luteal phase needs to do this. It's a case of get to know your body, get to know your period, also get to know how long, like for me, my follicular phase is like three weeks, right? And yeah. so it's, and then my luteal phase is two weeks and it took me a while of tracking to, to realize that. And then it's like, oh, okay. So actually it's going to be different for me than it would for say a standard 28 day cycle. Um, exactly. So getting to know exactly. your own body and how you feel. And, and like I've, I've seen you say in various places, some women get really quite severe PMS and some women get barely anything. So yeah. that can that can vary a lot. Um, I'm wondering if it's worth um, you giving us a brief overview of the menstrual cycle, just in case we have anyone listening that isn't like completely okay with it. 
Yeah, yeah. You'd be surprised. There's so many women who, who don't. Like, they hear it now more and more, which is fantastic. But the basic biology, I think, has been lacking in schools for so long. So when we talk about the menstrual cycle, and you mentioned 28 days. So in a textbook aspect, we look at um, 28 days being the length of the menstrual cycle, with day one being the first day of bleeding, as estrogen and progesterone are really low. And then around day 13, there's an estrogen surge, then a luteinizing hormone surge and that's what we call ovulation right after that LH surge or that luteinizing hormone surge um, LH drops estrogen starts to come up again after its surge progesterone is produced from ovulation so progesterone comes up and progesterone's main job is to increase the thickness of the endometrial lining for egg implantation so estrogen progesterone come up and that's what we call the luteal phase and the late luteal phase is where most women have the biggest symptoms of these hormone perturbations which we call premenstrual um, tension or premenstrual syndrome um, and then right before your period starts, you have an inflammation response. These hormones drop and it's a shedding of the um, endometrial lining, which is the bleeding. We know that um, in female athletes, we can have a very huge variation in the length of the cycle. Um, and we can track it and look at times of high stress where the, the cycle shortens times of more relaxed um, capabilities. You might have better recovery, better sleep. You're not traveling. You don't have intensity of competition. Then the cycle lengthens again. But what's lengthening and shortening is the follicular phase. The luteal phase stays pretty constant because you have ovulation and then it's pretty much a set amount of time um, to build the um, endometrial lining and then shedding. If we get to a point where a lot of endurance athletes or the overtraining aspect, you'll have a shortened luteal phase. We call this a luteal phase um, defect. And so your period might be, or your cycle might be 21 to 25 days. Um, and this is where we have progesterone insufficiency and ovulation. And this is where you can get checked to see why. So I'm explaining this. So if you start tracking your cycle, and you see these perturbations, then it gives you that stop. I need to check and see what's happening in my life. Am I training too hard? Am I not eating enough? Um, am I not getting enough sleep? What are all these confounding variables that are going to cause this, this sudden shortening of my cycle? And I should be aware of that. Yeah. And it's a really, it's a really interesting way basically to get a heads up on your body. Like, like we were saying, your period in a way is an ergogenic aid. Men don't yeah. have that kind of like heads up that they're overtraining. And, no. you know, there's, it's much more subtle. All the other symptoms that come with things like relative energy deficiency are much more subtle. Whereas your period is this like, hello, you're healthy. Yeah. Like yeah. signal. We're ready to go. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's quite interesting that you get those changes like a shortened luteal cycle or uh, sorry, luteal phase or something like that before you might lose your period completely. Yeah. Um, it's, so yeah. And that's why I'm so like, I shouldn't say I'm anti-pill, but I, I've been known to be saying I wish that most women um, wouldn't turn to an OC immediately as an athletic woman or someone who's looking for a way to manipulate their cycle. Um, I understand there's a time and a place for it. If there's a health reason or you don't want to use an IUD, then yeah, there's a place for hormonal contraception. But when you're on an OC, you don't have a real period. You have a withdrawal bleed and all of your normal endocrine hormones and sex hormones are downregulated. So you can't keep track of what's going on. It masks so many things. So you can have women who ordinarily would be in secondary um, amenorrhea have lost their periods. They have thyroid dysfunction. They have um, you know, no LH surge, but you can't tell because the pill masks that all. So they keep going and going and going, and then they get bone issues, they get iron issues, they get fatigue issues. And because they're on the pill, we can't take a step back and be like, well, actually, you're in this severe state of energy, um, low energy availability, and we need to just pull back. Um, so the, I guess the suggestion of going off the pill is so that we can keep track of our endocrine cycle. And so we can use our period and we can see what phases we can hit it hard and which ones we need to do more deloading and technique work. Yeah, so I'm trying to get most 
medical physicians and high performance sport on board with that idea mm. so that they can keep track of the health of their athletes in um, a non-invasive way. So if you're keeping track of menstrual cycle and seeing where phases might lengthen or shorten, do their girl or the, do their women have a period or not? It gives so much information rather than, oh, we have to do another blood test. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And actually, you pretty much described my, the last year of my life. I found out I had oh, no. this after coming off the pill, and I'd probably oh, been quite deep in it for quite a lot of years. And oh, no. I started working with, you've probably come across uh, Dr. Nicola Key. Um, yeah. Yep. So I've been working with her since September. I've got my period back now. And so I'm, I'm tracking and understanding and all this kind of stuff. But it was exactly what you've described. I was on the pill for years, iron deficiency, you know, all sorts of issues, fatigue and stuff that I just put down to other things. And then Hazel and I have actually done a separate podcast on that. So I won't go into it in too much detail, but it's, it's interesting to hear it come up here as well. Um, one of the things I did want to ask you actually about the pill was, apart from Red S, apart from monitoring for dysfunction, mm-hmm. is there a physiological downside to being on the pill in terms of performance? So assuming you're eating enough and you're not overtraining mm-hmm. and yep, energy sure. availability is kind of okay, is there... Is there a difference there or do we have any research that's robust enough to be able to give recommendations? Yeah, so um, we know that the endogenous hormones affect every system of the body. So your natural hormones affect every system of the body, which is why we can use it for different training purposes and understand it. So when you start using exogenous hormones or um, you know, synthetic estrogen and progesterone, they also affect every system of the body, but the critical part of these hormones um, is a hydroxyl group. So they're not bioidentical. Um, it's actually a, a synthetic hormone that's not quite right, so it does affect the systems differently. So we know that when you're using oral con- a combined oral contraceptive pill, it reduces your EO2 max. It reduces your ability to adapt to high-intensity interval work. It reduces your ability for a maximum contraction. Isometric strength is down. Um, Cognition, reaction time are down. Um, Some of the other aspects of like weight gain and stuff. Some people will say, oh, I'm doing this resistance training program on this OC and I increase muscle mass. But yes, it's not functional muscle mass. You will increase from um, muscle size, but not the actual contractile strength of that fiber. So there are a lot of negatives when we look at when we're trying to perform our best and we want to get that top end, we want to push through and get those improvement, that these exogenous hormones are more more in the prevention of you able being able to reach your performance potential. Okay. Um, yeah, so there's some good stuff that came out of Oz maybe two years ago with Mia Schomburg. She was looking specifically at... Um, interval training and adaptations and anaerobic capacity. Um, there's been a few that have come out of um, the UK actually, looking at strength specificity and strength training programs and the differences between the OC and naturally cycling women. So again, in the past five years, there's been some really good data. But ironically, it all started in the 90s and people didn't pay attention. So they kind of left that line of research. But now it's been picked up again. So, yeah. So oh, interesting. Yeah. So there's, there's enough for us to think that it's potentially not going to be as good, but then we seem to have a lot of athletes that high performing athletes that are on oral contraception, but there's this just, would you say that's just despite the oral contraception? Yeah. So, um, we, we finished a national survey this year. Australia is a little bit ahead of us by about six months. Sweden did one last year all about uh, menstruation and OC and all these things that the carded or the Olympic athletes are experiencing. And most of them had no idea what their period meant. They've been put on an OC to control their cycle and be able to manipulate it, but they don't understand the ramifications of being on it. Um, When asked, you know, are you naturally cycling? They're like, not unless I'm on an OC. So it was very much an awareness for the medical staff to be like, oh my gosh, all these women are in a pathological state and we've just put them on a pill to hide it. Um, So most of the reason that these elite women are on an OC is not to have a period, Um, not necessarily for the contraception side of things. I've been able to work quite closely with a few of the women's Olympic teams here 
And um, three years ago, no one was aware. No one knew what the period meant. No one knew what being on OC meant. But over the past three years, I've seen most of them come off the OC and go for an IUD for contraception. So they weren't going to get pregnant for the Olympics. And then some have just come off it completely and their injury rates gone down, their strengths, strength and um, performance have come up. And it's just been a stepwise, this amazing stepwise progression when you see them come off it three months later, their body's clear of it, back naturally cycling, and boom, away they go. So it's a bunch of data that I really want to write up, but because it's an Olympic year, I have an embargo on it. But now the Olympics are postponed, yeah. I might be able to write it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting, because I think a lot of what appeals to women, or maybe I, I guess I can speak for myself in the past of being on the pill is this kind of flatlining effect. Like I was on mm -hmm. a pill where I didn't have a period. And as a climber, mm -hmm. you know, half the time you're living out of a van or you're camping or something, it's really convenient, right? Not to have a period. And yeah. also you don't have these kind of ups and downs of hormones. And I imagine if you're in a kind of competition environment sport, knowing that you're just going to be the same all the time would reduce anxiety around, for example, getting having a competition race on the day when you know you normally get really bad cramps or something. And so I can yeah. see that that's the appeal for a lot of women. Exactly. And this is where um, we turn to an IUD because the technology of the IUD has changed so much. So all of the side effects of it not being put in properly or it dislodging or having lots of severe cramping um, has been taken into account and now we have things like ultrasound, ultrasound guided placement and there are um, physicians that have to be certified for it and um, they're smaller they're flexible and the thing with an IUD is you still have your naturally cycling hormones um, and after six months of being on the progestin laced IUD of the marina you'll ovulate but the idea behind the marina is it and a copper IUD is it changes the cervical mucus it makes it inhospitable to sperm okay. it also thins out the endometrial lining so an egg cannot be implanted but you also don't bleed a lot of women don't get their period on an IUD because the endometrial lining is so thin it doesn't cause an inflammation response for a period to start it just gets autofetched so it's more of that, um, you know, the cells being recollected and macrophages coming and eating it and disposing of it elsewhere. Um, okay. So you can track your cycle on an IUD um, and you can do a lot of the phase-based training and stuff that's coming out on an IUD, but still have the ability not to have a period. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Because I yeah. thought that the copper coil was, the copper IUD was one that you could do that on, but I thought the Mirena was different because it produced hormones, but it sounds like it's a low enough dose that yeah. um, that you can still track. So you'd just be tracking your ovulation. Yeah. Rather than so you can, yeah. So you can just, um, like the old fashioned way without having to get, uh, you know, blood tests and stuff is a basal temperature and an over-the-counter ovulation predictor kit. Mm -hmm. So you track your temperature, you see a surge, you do a pee stick with the ovulation predictor kit, and boom, you can track your um, ovulation and then your, your cycle that way. Um, and with the marina, for the first six months after it gets placed in, you won't have any kind of ovulation, but after six months... Um, the body gets used to that new progestin dose and just assimilates it and you start having your natural cycles again. Oh, interesting. Really interesting. Okay. So if, you know, say we have a female athlete and say she's not on any IUD or contraception or anything, she's got a natural mm -hmm. cycle. From a training perspective, we've obviously gone over the different phases, the follicular, the luteal, and obviously ovulation in the middle and um, the period. When, how and when would you would the general recommendations around training come into that cycle? Yeah, so um, we look at it as when your body can push it harder and when to bring it back. So the general schematic, regardless if it's strength or aerobic conditioning, is in the follicular phase, you do that top-end stuff. So if we're looking at strength training, it's at 80% to 90% of one rep max. You're doing five sets of five. I'm really working on that neuromuscular that whole strength component. If you're looking from um, 
like the cardiovascular high intensity stuff, it's that top end 30 second sprint, um, the VO2 work, all that really top end stuff that, that takes a lot to, to do and recover from. Um, around ovulation, like I said before, some women feel flat, some women feel fantastic. There's around a 36 hour period where this happens. If you're a little bit more sensitive to the surge in estrogen, then you're gonna feel flat because estrogen directly affects neurotransmitters in the brain. When that estrogen drops, you feel fantastic, but you still have um, an anabolic stimulus from the residual peak of that estrogen. So you can hit it hard again. And remember, it's a training stimulus that you're after. That's why we are training, because you want that high, high end, recover from it, get fitter. Um, and then when we get to early luteal phase, where estrogen and progesterone are starting to come up, this is where we can do more of that steady state work. So it's more of um, every minute on the minute type work in the gym if you're looking for strength stuff. Um, from a cardiovascular conditioning, it's more of your steady state, uh, below threshold aerobic conditioning. And then when you get to that five to seven days before your period starts, we call it the deloading. But in that deloading, you are working really specifically on technique, efficiency of movement, balance, cognition, reaction. Um, and it's more so because your body is, quote, tired without any kind of intervention. So if you're teaching your body technique and balance and reaction um, drills, and and movement economy and and how to do functional movements when your body's tired then when it comes to that low hormone phase again you have just nailed it so your technique is on um, so it's a way of really working again with your body to be able to improve things without stressing it too much Okay, that's interesting about what you say about the coordination, because one of my other questions was like, you know, I've heard this do coordination in that PMS week, but actually that's when a lot of us feel really uncoordinated, or at least that's what I've heard exactly. anecdotally from climbers. Um, yeah. So I, I didn't quite get that, but actually if you're doing it then, um, you'll be even better. Yeah. So you're, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then if you are working on that in the PMS week, then it becomes a non-issue, right? Because if we ignore it and only do it when we feel fantastic, then your body doesn't learn what it means to be tired and try to perform that way. So you want to try to get it when it's tired. So then you really get it when you're on. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's interesting hearing those kind of different phases within a cycle because a lot of the kind of traditional training, you know, periodized training blocks and stuff that we see in sport, like that wouldn't really work. This is basically doing kind of mixed training every month. It it? Is, so would yeah. you kind of, you know, if say if you have a female athlete that really wants to get um, some good strength gains, you know, the more traditional way to do it would be like, right, well, we're going to do a base conditioning phase, then we're going to move into a strength phase, and then we're going to, you know, do power or aerobic power maybe at the end um, before you, you want to peak. But that almost doesn't work with the menstrual cycle as much. Um, well, you can, you just have a, have a bigger eye. So if we're looking at um, building the pure strength aspect, then we know that, in the follicular phase, this is where you're going to put your heavy, heaviest training block. And then in the early luteal phase, you're still working on strength, but you're doing more of the traditional hypertrophy strength conditioning work um, and then technique. And then you build another block in. So you can still get the same idea. It's the periodizing of three weeks on, one week off that's out the window. Um, and I'm not a big fan of it anyway, because it was from a 1930s um, general adaptation to stress aspect. Then it was taken by the Russians in the 60s to apply to their Olympic um, male weightlifters. And then it all of a sudden became the way to periodize, because they're like, oh, well, the body responds to stress, can hold it for two weeks, and then needs to deload. So let's train that way. But women or men are different. So you know, when you look at three weeks on, one week off, our physiology across the board doesn't work that way because we have different muscle enzyme activity. So we can't do the same kind of intensity that men can day after day. Um, and then when we bring the menstrual cycle into play, um, you might miss a key window if your cycle is long. Like for you with three weeks of follicular mm -hmm. phase, if you do three weeks on and then one week off, you would miss that ability to do the steady state before you get in the deload. And then your next um, one, first week of the next three blocks, you'd be in the luteal phase where you're like, I can't do this. Like, yeah. I just can't hit that. what's going on. I'm mm -hmm. not responding to the training. 
So it's looking at your microcycles of what you do across the menstrual cycle. But then if you're looking at a bigger picture, you can use those microcycles and say, okay, within this, I'm doing this kind of block. And with the eye of doing three or four cycles within this whole big training block to build into this strength or build into this power. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And from a nutrition perspective throughout the cycle, are there certain things that we can do to kind of help that training um, stimulus along? Like for example, when you're doing the higher intensity work, obviously you need to have available carbohydrate. And then in that, I've, I've seen a lot of in the luteal phase where women are better at metabolizing fats. Um, yeah. Can you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, so um, in the low hormone phase where you don't have a lot of estrogen like pushing high, um, you can access glycogen quite well. Um, so you don't have to worry about having too, too many additional carbohydrates to hit those high intensities. Recovery, yeah, definitely. You want protein and carbohydrate to recover really well. When estrogen starts to come up, estrogen inhibits the body's ability to access glycogen, access carbohydrate. So your body turns to releasing more free fatty acids. Um, so your body becomes more dependent on free fatty acids. But we know that with intensity, you can't really hit intensity just on fat. So this is where you're looking at fueling for what you're doing. So if you have a longer session and you're on day 22, so you're quite smack dab in the middle of a luteal phase, then you're taking some glucose tablets or you're having a couple of jelly beans just to boost your blood sugar so that you can hit those intensities. Um, and then we also know that uh, progesterone is catabolic. So when you have elevation in progesterone, you really have to pay attention to protein and amino acid circulation because if you're low in your protein, one, you're not going to recover well or build lean mass. But two, if you don't have enough leucine circulating, you're going to have a lot of central nervous system fatigue and um, brain fatigue. So leucine becomes critical not only for muscle protein synthesis, but also for mitigating the way estrogen affects serotonin and um, creating like this anxiety and depression. Uh, because leucine uses the same carrier protein as tryptophan to cross over. And so if you can get more leucine crossing over, then you don't have as much tryptophan, which then turns into serotonin. So you're just able to just keep more of an even keel and not get that lack of mojo and that what is going on brain, brain fog. Okay, interesting. So keeping protein perhaps at the higher end of your target during your luteal phase and into that PMS yeah. week. Definitely okay, interesting. I've also seen some evidence supporting B6, vitamin D, omega-3, and magnesium for mainly actually what I've seen is for psychiatric symptoms during the PMS week um, yeah. and also antioxidants. So all of this could be found in like a whole food varied diet. Is there a need or is there a room or a place where people might want to supplement or is it just a making sure you get it in your diet? So I'm all about real food first, of course. Um, but for women who have really severe PMS or they have a bit of heavy bleeding and they're trying to flatline it, uh, we know that the body uses more magnesium and zinc um, to build that tissue that's going to be shed. And your immune system takes a hit because we have different immune system responses between the low and the high hormone phase. Uh, so we're in the high hormone phase. We need more zinc and glutamine um, to help with a, a cytokine response that's different from the follicular phase. So you can look to supplement in the last about seven days before your period starts to support the body. So we're looking at 250 milligrams of magnesium, 45 milligrams of zinc. And then you want to add around a gram of omega-3 fatty acids to counter some of the prosiclandin effects that estrogen has that causes inflammation and bloating. Um, so all of that, if you do that over the course of three cycles, you start to flatline the peaks and you don't have as bad of PMS, you don't have as bad of the inflammation response. So it starts to flatline those peaks. You don't have as much bleeding, you don't have as much cramping, you don't have as much inflammation, and it just helps across the board. Okay, interesting. So I guess like we were saying in the beginning, it's a case of tracking a cycle, seeing what you're experiencing, and then trying some stuff. And seeing, exactly. being like, right, okay, well, I've heard this, so I'm going to try it, and I'm going to, and once you have that baseline tracking, you can then track to see if there's, there's any changes. Yeah. 
the one beauty of, these, of biohacking. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of the things with some of the tracking apps that I've kind of felt a bit uneasy about is sometimes I know I think it's the fit are women or one one of them does like some predictions and I've always thought mm-hmm. that's a bit strange and I think you can you do have the option to turn it off um because obviously if you feel a certain way and you've put it into your app every month then it I think it comes up and says oh you might feel I don't know grumpy in two days and I feel like that's I a know. little bit self-suggestive right um yeah and maybe not super helpful yeah, exactly. So I, I've gone round and round with a few of the developers of these apps about the language that's being used. Mm. Um, it comes down from the historical aspect of things like the girl push-up, the girl bar in the gym, so the modified one, right, or the light one. So when you start looking at the language that's being produced in these nudges of health and, and recommendations, they have a negative tone because um, there should never be a part in your cycle that you think you can't perform your best. And when you start getting these nudges that say, oh, you might be a bit grumpy, you might be a bit bloated, you should try this, or maybe you shouldn't do this today in your training because you might not maximize your potential. That's a big red flag to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been working with a few developers who've looked at the language nuances um, and have taken the, the negativity out of it. And it's looking at, oh, look, you're seven days out from your period. Let's work on technique and functional movement, and let's add some magnesium so you can perform your best. Um, and if you're starting to look at the AI-driven ones, um, like Wild AI is coming out, and they're looking at your input and your training stress, and it's learning from you as you go. So if you're usually, say, you know, four days before your period starts, you feel flat. It's not going to say, hey, guess what? You're four days out. You feel flat. It's going to say, you're four days out. Let's add some leucine in. And it's not going to tell you why. It's just going to say, let's add some leucine in to improve your potential. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I feel much happier with some of those apps coming out on the market mm. because the last thing any woman wants is some kind of negativity coming in to play with those voices in her head already that's telling us, well, maybe you shouldn't be, or maybe it's not right for you. Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. And one of the things a lot of women see in their cycle is fluctuations in water retention and as a result, Mm -hmm. fluctuations in weight. Now, obviously, I come from like quite a weight sensitive sport climbing. We lift our body weight. So certain training sessions or certain, you know, climbs are going to feel quite different if you're suddenly, you know, holding a lot of water. And I know that, you know, from talking to friends that that can play into psychology quite a lot of how you're, you're feeling. What's the mechanism behind the water retention that we see in the cycle? And is it connected with hydration? Um, it's not connected with hydration. It has everything to do with estrogen's effect on the kidney. So we have these little water channels um, called aquaporin. And specifically, aquaporin 4 in the level of the kidney is very sensitive to estrogen and prostaglandin. So when you have prostaglandin E2, which is an estrogen-driven prostaglandin that affects the aquaporin, it causes you to retain water not within the blood space, but within the interstitium. So things like um, using a diuretic are not going to help because it's not in a plasma space that's going to allow you to actually get rid of it. The way that you counter it is by using things like the omega-3 fatty acids because it counters that um, prostaglandin E2 using something like um, white willowbark or baby aspirin, because that too counters the prostaglandin E2. So it becomes more of, it's an inflammation response. So if we can counter that inflammatory prostaglandin, then we don't get that water retention. Um, And this is what people find when they're doing the magnesium and stuff over the course of three cycles is because you're having this flatlining and you're not having as much of a, a inflammation response from prostaglandin and, and uh, immune response from cytokines, you don't have that water flux, you don't have that bloating, um, which becomes a huge relief for a lot of women because now they're like, wait, I didn't put on three kilos in the last mm. week before my period starts. Um, and I too work with a lot of women who are in weight class, either from Olympic lifting to elite cyclists and stuff, right? So when you can counter that, uh, it just becomes this huge relief across the board. Yeah. Okay. Can you can you tell us what a prostaglandin is for people listening? Yeah, prostaglandin is a um, it's a it's more of an immune response and it's an inflammatory. Um, protein marker. So what it does is it attaches to a receptor site and causes 
uh, a response. And in this case, it attaches to a receptor site in the kidney that makes the aquaporin channel close and makes your body retain more fluid. Okay, and it's reactive to estrogen. So the more estrogen you have, mm -hmm. the more that's gonna happen. Exactly. Okay, okay that makes sense. Um, so I've heard, and I think actually this is where we first connect, connected, is that Hazel wrote a post about fear in PMS. She was, a week before a period, she was just terrified. She was in Spain climbing, and she just said, look, I'm just scared all the time. And, and I think you commented on her post, and that's how we first ended up connecting yeah. over you coming on the podcast. So let's, let's go into that a little bit. Climbers that report more fear in their PMS week, and I mean, obviously that's going to have a massive impact on adrenaline sports like climbing. What's yeah. that <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this comes into what's happening from a neurotransmitter part in the brain, right? So a lot of women say, oh, I've lost my mojo, or I have this incredible anxiety and fear. And because estrogen can readily cross the blood-brain barrier, it directly affects um, the neurotransmitters in our brain that control things like fear and anxiety. Um, in particular, like I said earlier, serotonin, because when you have an upsurgence of estrogen, you have a lot more serotonin that is being produced, but being held in the brain. So as soon as we start to have that downgrade of estrogen, we have a huge serotonin dump. And with that comes fear and depression. So in that PMS week, when estrogen is starting to come down, you're having more of the serotonin dump. And like I said earlier, the best way to counter that is having some leucine because when leucine crosses the blood-brain barrier, then it can't, it inhibits estrogen affecting so much of the serotonin because tryptophan doesn't get in the brain to be converted to serotonin. So when you're looking at fear and depression and you take um, branched-chain amino acids or increase your protein intake, all of that is mitigated. Yeah. Okay, so for people listening, leucine is like a key amino acid that you'll get in complete proteins or BCAAs, things like that. So it's, yeah. it's one of the branch chain amino acids, but you do get it in, in any kind of complete protein source. So yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the th other things I wanted to ask you is what research are you currently involved in? What's kind of going on for you academically like right now? Right now, nothing. Everything's on hold because of well, the yeah. COVID-19. <laughs> Um, no, but I have um, some really good PhD students right now. Um, so one is doing phase-based strength work. Um, another one is looking at pre- and post-operative strength programs for ACL and spinal injury. I have another one that's looking specifically into sex differences and concussion because all the concussion recovery information is based on male data and estrogen directly affects um, uh, BDNF, which is a, a neuropeptide that's responsible for brain tissue health. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. That one's fascinating so, to me. I actually had a concussion a couple of yeah. years ago, but I was unbeknown to myself deep in red S at the time. So, oh, so. But I read some of the research and was a bit like, oh, I don't know. like, <laughs> ah, Where do I go with this? I know. Yeah. Um, I had a concussion last year because I got hit by a van going 80 kph when I was mm. riding my bike. Um, and the concussion services here called me like six months after it happened, wondering how my symptoms were. And I was like, I'm sweet. Cause I just tapped into someone who's doing the premium research. So it's like all the nutritional things you need to do, all that kind of stuff. So really excited about some of that research that's coming out. Mm. Um, we're doing a couple of, of gut microbiome um, studies, looking at how that changes with training stress. Because if you're thinking about getting ready for a pinnacle event, and a lot of people tend to get upper respiratory tract infections or GI distress, um, feeling flat and fatigued. And a lot of the signs and symptoms of that come from um, you know, a gut perturbance. So uh, depending on what you're eating, how do you mitigate that? What are the changes that happen with high versus low stress of training? Um, so that one's coming out pretty interesting. And then um, the other one that I'm involved in is taking both the sociocultural aspects and the physiological aspects of low energy availability so that we can start putting in prevention for it. So if you understand what's driving the person in sport and understanding what food means from growing up in their culture, um, then you can address more of the food and body image issues rather than just looking at the physiological data and saying, you need to eat more. Mm. But if 
you know, there's this whole background and cultural influence that comes from it, then how are you going to em- emphasize that? Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, Hazel and I have talked a bunch about, and on one of our other podcasts, about body image in climbing and identity within climbing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, with it being a weight-sensitive sport and with a lot of high-performing climbers generally looking a certain way, like quite lean. Exactly. There's this kind of real danger around low energy availability when people are striving to perform in that space where it feels, you know, climbing feels more effortless when you're light and you're also trying to fit into this identity of a climber. It's it's a dangerous mix. Yeah. Yeah. Have you um, heard of Professor Holly Thorpe at all? No, I haven't. I'll send you um, her profile, but she's one of my close colleagues here and she's a, a sociologist and she she touts herself as being a feminist sociologist. Mm-hmm. I don't really quite see her as being a feminist. She's just very strong in furthering women in sport. And she does a lot in female athletes in extreme sport. And one of her um, themes that she's picked up is when women like who are climbers or rugby players or tennis players um, or even Olympic weightlifters, and they have to look a certain way for their sport, but that's not the ideal for society. And it's this conflict of being muscular and light and powerful for your sport. But then when you're taken out of that sporting context, how does it make you feel? So that also plays into how women um, feel within their sporting context and drives the way they eat and they train. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Oh, wow. That's that's really interesting yeah. to be studying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other thing that you actually mentioned, I think, in one of your PhD students studying that I did want to pick up on was, um, was one of them studying something to do with, there was some ligaments. Did you say ligament laxity in one of them? <laughs> or have I just picked that oh, out no, somewhere? No, no. no that, <laughs> but it does fall into face-based um, training for pre- and post-operative care, specifically ACL. Case. That was it. It was when you said yeah, ACL yeah, tears. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I must remember to pick up on that because I saw yeah. a study in hockey players where ACL injury prevalence was much higher around ovulation. Mm-hmm. And is that something we should be aware of in sport? I mean, with climbing, we put a lot of weight on our fingers. A lot of people might get pulley tears or tendon strains at certain points in their climbing life. Is mm-hmm. there a, a pattern in that in terms of the menstrual cycle we should be aware of? Um, around ovulation, because the body's preparing to release the egg, there's also an upsurgence of relaxin. So for around 36 hours, you have a little bit more relaxin hanging out in your in your body, which causes more laxity in the tendons. Um, being aware of it, so you're a little bit more cautious in what you're doing, is the first step to prevention. Um, the reason why there's such a high incidence of ACL tears, in particular in, in younger, like the 19 to 20 year old set, is they're not retaught mechanics at that puberty onset like we were talking about earlier Mm. so making sure that movement form and function is spot on prevents injury so it's a it's more of that twofold being aware and then putting into play so you know that you're a little bit more susceptible to injury what are you going to do more strengthening and more maybe even collagen to improve tendon um, tension and then really focusing on that deload week of technique so that Mm. you get movement efficiency Okay. And relaxin is a hormone that I may be wrongly, if my physiology is off here, associate with um, women in pregnancy. So is, yep. is pregnancy a time when I know a lot of climbers do climb through their pregnancies, some longer than others, depending on how they feel. But I know some women that felt quite well during their pregnancy, they've climbed quite a lot. Do they need to be more careful of injury? Yeah, they do across the board because you have uh, more estrogens circulating, of course, because you're pregnant, progesterone as well, more uh, relaxin, oxytocin. Um, So all of these, um, not oxytocin because that's the drug, is it? No, oxycodone is the drug. Yeah, Yeah. oxytocin is a hormone, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was like, wait a second, no. Um, Yeah, so all of those increase um, your injury risk, but Mm -hmm. if if you've been climbing before you're pregnant, right, and then you get pregnant, it's not like you're picking up a new sport. So inherently, sure. your injury risk is lower. Just again, being aware. And when you're pregnant, your body tells you what you can and cannot do. Um, so yeah, it's just being aware that you might have to modify. But if you're feeling strong, you're going well, then there's no reason to stop. Okay, yeah. And 
during the menopause, obviously that's like a huge other topic that we haven't touched oh, yeah. on. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> can we briefly go into that a little bit? Because I know that there are a lot of women still climbing um, around the menopause and perimenopause. And what are the, I guess, standout main things to consider in terms of training and nutrition as far as your research can suggest so far? Yeah, um, everything changes. <laughs> so um, perimenopause is really difficult because you can't really track anything. So um, the best way really is to keep tracking menstrual cycle, mood, um, and how you're feeling. But also it's the time to start tr changing the type of training that you're doing. Because when menopause fully sets in, we don't have estrogen to help with the anabolic stimulus. Um, we also become more sensitive to carbohydrate. Um, so we have to be careful what kinds of, of carbohydrate we're intaking as well. So we know that high intensity interval training and resistance training, like I'm notorious for saying lifting heavy shit. Mm. Um, so, and all of these go because you need that high intensity interval training for blood sugar control and to stimulate the body to store glycogen and use more body fat at rest. Um, you need to lift heavy to maintain that neuromuscular integrity. So it's not about improving lean mass development, but it's about maintaining power and strength of the contraction um, because we need that stimulus, that extra stress from lifting heavy, plus a good protein dose post-exercise to keep that muscle protein synthesis going and to keep the strength and the integrity of the muscle fiber contraction. Um, so those are the biggest things that come up with the onset of menopause is changing the training and making sure that you hit that protein post-exercise. But at 20 grams and at 30 grams doesn't do anything. You're on the upwards of 40 grams because in order to get muscle protein synthesis, you need that stress from training and that higher dose to get more leucine circulating to actually stimulate in the brain first. Um, the feed forward mechanism for mTOR, which is your um, activation of muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, and I've seen that across the board in, in research on men as well, that as you get older, across the board, we need more protein in order, you know, yes. there's that slight anabolic resistance, isn't there? So protein yeah. doses just need to be a little bit higher. Uh, well, actually, a reasonable amount higher yeah. when you're in that kind of slightly older phase. Yeah. Yeah, and it's when menopause hits, like men have that gradual into aging where they can slowly get anabolic resistance. But for women, it's like, boom, all of a sudden, like I have friends who are going through it now that I, I feel like overnight I got soft and squishy. What's going on? Mm. It's like, yeah, well, it's a buildup. It starts really in your um, early to mid forties where you need to start changing it up because your hormones start perturbing. Even if you're having normal cycles, you're just starting to become a little bit more, um, insulin resistant and anabolic resistance setting in so changing up training and nutrition while you're still quote normal um, before you get into peri and postmenopause sets you up for a really good path forward mm. wow there's so much to consider isn't there yeah so, um, and what do you think the way forward is in terms of research for in female physiology because i've heard you say before you know like uh, there's not enough research in women that's because women are more complicated to study because we've got all these different phases of menstrual cycle we've got menopause we've got perimenopause so it is quite hard to control right a study mm -hmm. how can researchers go about being able to study women more effectively is there like a way through that com complex kind of myriad of issues yep and it's taking the male lens away from it so all that you described about the complexity is because we've been driven through this patriarchal system of saying we need to make it really clean and easy. But if the scientific design requires us to take into account different phases of the menstrual cycle, that's just part of the scientific design. So when we look at women and go, well, yeah, you have two phases. We have all these hormone perturbations in premenopausal women. We're going to design a study for that. And that's just what you do. Um, we're pushing more journal uh, article or more journals to put guidelines in their guidelines for authors to say like you have to include women it has to be a sound scientific design if it's not then don't even send your papers in mm. um, because we need to push that out there and get rid of the male focus of if it's too complex we're not going to consider it 
And so you're looking specifically at the premenopausal woman. And we know that OC is very experimental in its own right. So if you want to know more about the OC, then you're designing a study that's specific for the OC. You're not comparing OC to natural cycling women. We need to know exactly what's happening between the two phases. You need to design a study that's specific to that to get that basic information. And then maybe you can do a comparison. So it's a stepwise progression, and we're starting to see it, which is great. And then when we get into peri and postmenopause, you have to take into account that that's a different life stage. And we know that there's a lot of research out there in peri and postmenopausal women, but it's all on um, cardiovascular risk factors and metabolic disease and sedentary obese women that end up with these great health risks. So now we're like, okay, well, you have the schematic to be able to study it. Let's put it in master's athletes. Let's put it in older athletes who aren't in that range of cardiovascular and metabolic disease. But we do want to know how their muscle changes. We do want to know what kind of interventions we can put into play so that they improve their quality of life and can keep competing. So it, it sounds really complicated when you put it all out there, but when you're in the moment and you're designing studies, you're like, yeah, okay, got it. These are my, um, these are my parameters and this is how I slot it in. And we need to make it that much easier for people, which is why there's the push for editors to put it in their guidelines for authors, because a lot of people will ignore it because no one spells it out. Like, how do you do this? So if we spell it out, it just becomes simple. Yeah, because even outside of sport, a lot of the recommendations or kind of some of it's kind of fad diety stuff as well. But like a lot of the nutrition stuff you see even outside of sport doesn't really work as well for women or won't work as well for all women you know like things like intermittent fasting or um, fasted training stuff like that for some women that might work really well but for a lot of women it really wasn't in the same way that it works for men and it took me quite a long time to realize that (laughs) we could do an entire podcast on that uh, yeah because it has to do with like kiss peptin and the fact that people are trying to just do intermittent fasting and not exercise, or they try to combine them, but they exercise data does the same thing as intermittent fasting. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that happen in that, that nutrition field or starts as a clinical study and then pushed over, but then it's pushed out across the board and women don't realize that, wait, we are different from men and we're going to mm-hmm. have different responses. Um, yeah. So it, I'm really interested in the, um, upcoming COVID vaccine that's coming out because I know they're not going to test it on women because it's not even in their in their um, site. So right now, from the stats that are coming out, men are more susceptible to infection and dying from it than women. Yeah. So of course, they're going to design the vaccine to hit that population, but then what's going to happen in the winter? Oh, interesting. Um, but that's my bias. But. Sure. I wonder if previous vaccines have been tested on men and women. No, probably not. Probably not because the ones that the, the ones that they're quite well in women. Um, don't know because the data hasn't been shown to be sex specific or not. Okay. What they're doing is they're pulling up vaccines that were good but not as good for things like H1N1 and SARS. Um, but they're all coronaviruses, so they're like, okay, well maybe we can get it to work for this particular strand of the coronavirus because there is some efficacy there. Maybe we have to modify it a little bit, but they're not starting from scratch or ground zero because they've already had clinical trials in it. Mm. But most of the time, again, clinical trials are based in the male population. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, maybe that's a good way, a good place to, to finish. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> the rant of the times. <laughs> no, it's all good. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And, uh, a, a great conversation. I had, I had like loads of notes. So, uh, oh my gosh! We've, uh, we've been through all of them, <laughs> so, and you do it the way much. I do. Hello, handwritten stuff, not on the computer. It's fantastic. oh yeah, I'm I'm a handwriter for like everything. I often yes, like write sir. things out and then type them up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds familiar. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Oh, right. lovely to meet you, and thank you yeah, so much same. for your time. Really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks cool. for um. Thanks for the time, and stay safe. Yeah. You too. All right. Okay. All right. See ya. Bye. Ciao. Bye.